I uh, hope that, yeah, you're enduring, enduring the semester. Who was I talking with? I was talking with a, some, uh, somebody today, <clears throat> and she put the nail on the head. She said, uh, yeah, November is like the Thursday of the semester. And I was like, oh, that's so real. <clears throat> Just like the, God, make this end, and yet I still got to survive. So, um, yeah, we're in the trenches. So, but it's great to see you all tonight. Um, I hope y'all are well. Uh, welcome to Large Group, welcome to RUF. My name is Jonathan. If I haven't met you, uh, I'd love to meet you and uh, get to know you a little bit more. Um, so the last couple of, <clears throat> something stuck in my throat. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the, the book of John. <clears throat> and uh, we've been asking ourselves, as we look at this book, uh, what does it have to say about who Jesus is? As John shows us, uh, this is who I remember Jesus was, and this is who um, he said he was, and it matters. And how does it matter, and why does it matter? <clears throat> and we've been looking at, first of all, some of the things that Jesus says about himself. He says, I am, and then fills in more things, and that shows us uh, who he is. But he also thinks that he does, signs that he does, that indicates and points to um, what Jesus is about, why he matters. And so tonight, we're going to keep at that, we're going to keep going at that, and we're going to look at another one of uh, Jesus's I am statements. Uh, and so uh, we're going to look at what it means when Jesus says he's the vine. Uh, and so what I want to, again, start us off this week is one of the main things that I talk with students about kind of week to week as I meet with y'all is based what what I don't, this is a new word. This word wasn't around when I was in school, but drama. Like people are like, I got drama with blank. I got drama with, a, with my roommate or there's just, oh, she's just so much drama, blah, blah, blah. And I'm kind of still trying to catch up. But we all kind of have drama in our world. Friends, roommates, family, kind of this drama. And it, from what I'm understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, I've, I can't believe I, I start to feel old. Like I'm 30 and I'm starting to feel old. But it's like this catch-all term for like disharmony or like gossip and attention-seeking and betrayal and sort of disregard for people in general kind of all combine. And um, like college is sort of this cesspool of drama, right? <laughs> And, um, and so we all have this drama, and sometimes we're at the center of it, and sometimes other people are at the center of it, and we're caught up in it, and we know something's wrong with how we're interacting with people. And we all know that we, kinda, we don't want to be in drama. We, be, we want to personally be like caring, compassionate, empathetic people, uh, and yet we know that we're not, and we definitely know that other people aren't. Uh, so you know, we want to be the kind of people where drama doesn't happen or where it gets resolved evil, easily. And in the Bible, sort of those characteristics where drama doesn't happen, that's called fruit. That's called the fruit of a Christian life where we're kind, gentle, compassionate people. And so the question is, like, how do we get there? <laughs> how do we get to become people where drama is less of this thing that consumes us, partially just so I don't have to talk with you all about it. No, I'm kidding. But uh, no, just like, so how do we get to be people where drama is less of a deal? And John is going to open us into, like, kind of open a little bit of, of that and talk about less drama and more the, the opposite, which is this idea of fruit, of Christian fruit. And so um, he's going to do this by using this agricultural analogy that Jesus says. And so we're going to look at what it means when Jesus says, I am the vine, and how it encounters our lives, even in our drama. And so tonight, we're going to see that Jesus calls us to bear fruit by abiding in him. Jesus calls us to bear fruit 
by abiding in him. And I want to unpack that in three ways. First, what it means when Jesus says he's the true vine. Second, what is the true fruit that he calls us? And third, how do we get there? How do we get there to this fruit? So this is a packed passage. There's a ton happening in here. We're not going to be able to look at all of it in depth, but we'll try to get into it. So um, if you have your uh, bulletin or your Bible, look onto it with me, and I'm going to read the passage. Uh, You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't remember. Did I print through verse 9 or verse 10 on there? 10. Cool. I'm going to read through verse 10. (laughs) Thursday of the semester, y'all. All right, this is God's word. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it, be, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. For if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, whatever, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Let me pray for us. Lord in heaven, uh, it does feel like the Thursday of the semester. We're tired and we're worn out. And uh, the last thing maybe we want to do is just come hear another person's talk at us. Uh, And yet, Lord, in many ways, this is different. This is not a lecture. It's your word uh, that ministers to us. So, Father, give us energy and mental and emotional strength to pay attention. Would your spirit use this to shape us into more caring, loving, fruitful people? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this, the first thing to notice tonight is uh, the true vine, right at the very beginning. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and the section that we're in in John is called the Farewell Discourse, and it's quite long. And remember, we've talked about this a little bit. Jesus has said, I'm going away, I'm leaving. And I want to kind of give you my final thoughts, my crash course on kind of everything I've taught you. And what we've just looked at is a piece of that long discourse that he, that he tells them. And in part of it, he says just here what, what we just read, and he says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And right off the bat, he's making a very important statement about himself when he says, I am the true vine. He's telling us a piece of who he is and why it matters. So here he says, I'm the true vine. What does he mean by that? Now, to get a handle on what he means by that, uh, we have to go back quite a bit into the Old Testament because there's a long, large history of, of the idea of vines in, uh, in the Bible. The vine image is very common throughout Scripture. It, that God uses it all the time to talk about his people and spe- specifically. And so for example, in Psalm 80, the psalmist writes, he says that, that God uh, redeems the people of Israel out of slavery and like a tender vine takes them out of this place where they were dying and destroyed in Egypt and tenderly plants them in the land of Israel. So he, he says, Israel is like my tender 
vine that I love and I care for, and I plant it so that it will grow. Isaiah 5 does the same thing. that He, he says Israel is, is God's chosen people, his favorite vine that he rescues and tenderly plants in the promised land. And when he plants them, think about when you plant something, you expect fruit from it, right? You would expect that, hey, when something's been put into the ground that's going to produce fruit, you, you want to see fruit come from it. And so he says, okay, Israel is my tender vine that I've put into the ground. And then what happens, some of you know the story of Israel. Israel doesn't really live up to those expectations, right? And Isaiah 5 says that when God expects fruit, the only thing he gets from Israel are sour grapes. So he expects them to bear fruit uh, and, and, you know, to, to basically obey and love him, and they pretty much completely fail over and over and over again. They, they, uh, they fail to meet God's expectations. They fail to love him. They fail to love others. They fail to be this sort of community of peace and joy and harmony. And uh, he says this, they're sour grapes. They're worthless produce. And, and worse than like just straight up drama, they're straight up, Israel becomes this, this society of sin, of like oppression and wickedness and evil. So then the prophets then come to Israel and they continue this vine image. And they say in Ezekiel 15, it says, because of Israel's failure, God is going to like do what any farmer would do when a crop fails to yield its fruit. I mean, think about if you plant something in the ground and all, you know, you expect to get sweet grapes from it and all you get is just sour grapes. What are you going to do? You're going to cut it out. You're like, this is worthless. I don't want anything to do with this. You're going to, so he says, Ezekiel 15 says that God's going to cut it out cut the vine out, cut Israel out, and burn the whole thing. This is worthless. And so that's what he does with Israel. He sends them into exile. He cuts them out. He removes them from the land. And all that's left over is sort of a burned out, charred over piece of dirt in Israel. And so now there's this expectation of like, well, what happened to the vine? What, what happened? God says he, he's going to make this, this vine that's going to bear fruit. And everyone's like, all we're left over was this burned over district of nothing left. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes onto the scene and says, I am the true vine. I'm the vine. I'm the one who's going to realize all of God's expectations for fruit and for flourishing. He says, I am the new, I am the second Israel. I'm going to be the one that comes and actually bears fruit I'm the beloved one. I'm the one who is tenderly planted and cared for by the Father that is going to bring fruit into the world. And he says, not only am I the true vine, but I'm also the source of all fruit in anyone who would seek to follow God. He says, if you want to be the kind of person who is drama-free, not, but not only that, but if you want to be the kind of person who is gentle and kind and compassionate and loving the kind of person that other people want to be around, I'm the source for that. I am the vine. I'm the vine that will nourish and create and shape a community without drama, without backstabbing, a community which loves and dignifies and honors everyone. And we're going we're to get to that in a second. <clears throat> but that's what Jesus is saying here. Is he's, he's building on this expectation that has been going on for thousands of years. Of, 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 of a community and an individual and a person that's going to finally bring flourishing into the world. And Jesus says, I'm that person. I am the hope for a drama-free community in the world. I am the vine. 
And that brings us to our second point then. So he says, okay, if I'm the vine, how are we to interact then with the vine? And he says, we're, in there, there's a call to fruitfulness. And I'm, I hope you noticed that as we read it over and over again. He says, look, he says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Later on in verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 8, he says the same thing. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So Jesus is saying here that part and parcel of being a follower of the living God, that part and parcel of being a disciple of the vine is doing what the vine itself does and doing what the new community of the vine is expected to do, which is what the original community was expected to do, bear fruit. It makes, he's like, this makes total sense. So he's saying that a community that would follow God ought to bear fruit in their lives. It's a call, it's a command throughout this text that the vine and the branches bear fruit. And so what does that mean outside of the analogy? Outside of the analogy, it means that Jesus is telling us, Jesus is telling his disciples that our lives should reflect characteristics of love, of gentleness, of kindness, of goodness. Look at the text. Look, verse 2 is one of the clearest pictures of this. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you, disciples of me, my followers, bear much fruit. So this means that Christian lives should manifest lives, should live lives which exist, sorry, which exhibit, which show forth the qualities and the virtues of Jesus. Love, you know what they are, some of you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. He's saying here that Christians ought to be virtuous people, distinguished by a special kind of unique, tapped into the supernatural divine love. Another way of thinking about this, I, don't, I think this works. I don't know genetics. Nat, correct me if I'm wrong. The DNA of the fruit should match the DNA of the vine. Think about fruit. When, like when the DNA of an organ gets scrambled up, like bad things happen. So Jesus is calling us to reproduce his DNA in our lives, that where the fruit should look like the vine. And when bad things, like when the DNA gets scrambled, bad things happen. He says there should be a correlation between my source and your life. That's what he's calling us to. And this is a theme all over the Bible, all over Scripture, and it's this idea of fruit-bearing. Paul prays, to the, uh, prays for the church in Colossians in one of his letters. He says that the church would, he says he prays that the church would live worthily of God, quote, bearing fruit in every good work. Or Galatians 5, you've, you've probably all heard of the fruit of the Spirit. I just read them. That, that, that the, the spirit-filled life, that the Christian life is one marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. <clears throat> what does this mean? It means that Christian fruit are ethical actions and heart dispositions which obey and honor God and dignify and love other humans. Let me read that again. Christian fruit is either ethical actions or heart dispositions 
which honor and obey God and dignify and love other human beings. Now, if that's the one side, the converse is also true. There's also in this text, Jesus is warning us. Warning us that when there's no fruit, something is wrong. Look again at verses 2 and 6. Verse 2, every branch, that does not, uh, let's see, every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6, this one's where it really, he really pours it on. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into a fire and burned. Jesus is saying here that the failure to bear fruit results in pruning and ultimately burning. So I, uh, I run quite a bit to keep my sanity. And one of the things that I do is uh, I run like every day in this pecan grove. And uh, the pecan groves are generally like a couple months from now after they harvest, the farmers go through and they kind of shave off all the, tr- uh, the, the trees that aren't, that, you know, the part of the tree that didn't, didn't produce nuts. And literally what they do, it's amazing, they, they pile all the branches that didn't produce nuts into one corner of the orchard and they burn them. And it's, it's like kind of, well, one, it's terrifying because you're running through the pecan groves and they're su- it's super smoky and I can't breathe and it's like hazy and it's in these pecan groves that are dead of trees. It's like it goes from like this really beautiful orchard to some sort of zombie apocalypse and it's just like a terrifying place to run. But it's like it's, I don't know, I was thinking about that today and I was thinking about this and uh, I mean there's like this, this, this ominous sense here. This, you know, and, and they do the same thing back in 2,000 years ago that when a branch doesn't bear fruit, the farmer cuts it off. He burns it. And Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling us that a failure to produce fruit in our life has drastic consequences. Just like Israel in Ezekiel 15. That over and over again, their repeated failure to bear fruit, God says, I'm removing you from the land. I'm, remo- I'm cutting you off from me. Ezekiel 15 says, Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given fuel for fire, so I have given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? Because they failed repeatedly, consistently, for hundreds of years, they failed to bear fruit. So there's an element, I think, of warning here that the Christian life should be marked by fruit and that the failure results in God's punishment. In John's language, the failure to bear fruit indicates a failure to abide in Jesus, a failure to trust and believe in Jesus. So let's look at that warning. Let's see what that means. The application then is like, <laughs> is my life, is your life one that bears fruit? And that's a real question that John would push on to us. He would say, take a hard look at your life, your ethical life, your day-to-day choices. Take a hard look at the disposition of your heart towards God and towards others. Do your ethical choices, are they marked, are they marked by characteristics, by virtues of patience and of gentleness and of self-control? I'll pick one area to focus on. <laughs> this is funny that you mentioned it. I'm going <laughs> to, this is providential. <laughs> I'm going to pick up g- gossip. Uh, nothing is more damaging or destructive to a community than gossip and nothing makes drama worse than gossip right like what is gossip gossip I mean most of us know what it is it's talking about another person behind their back without their consent like in a damaging way and Christians 
and non-Christians, we're all like notorious for this. Um, like, let's just be honest, like drama, 80% of drama is gossip. It's just, it just gets, it's just like fans the flames of drama. She heard, she told me this, I heard this, we just love it, we eat it up. I, I had a pastor, I read this the other day, a pastor wrote this and it just destroyed me. Um, he said, gossip is the pornography of the mouth, a cheap thrill that offers zero commitment to the person being objectified. Gossip is the pornography of the mouth, a cheap thrill that offers zero commitment to the person being objectified. That's what gossip is. It objectifies another person. It's a power grab to manipulate a story, to make them look bad, to give us power. It's the opposite of loving them. In Galatians 5, just before Jesus lists out this, the fruit of the Spirit, he lists the opposite, the fruit that is uh, destructive, and he says, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. And I was reading those, and I was like, oh my gosh, like all of those are gossip-driven. <laughs> and it just blew my mind, because it just, I, I was reflecting, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm a pastor, and in my attempt to care for people, I end up gossiping about them. And I was struck to the core. How, how sinful I am, how the opposite of fruitful that is. And to me, John would say, repent, confess that, move towards the opposite, move towards bearing fruit. And if you're anything like me, when you, something like that convicts you, you just start to like beat yourself up and be like, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> how can God love me? Some of you look in your life and you say, well, I don't see fruit or I see the opposite of fruit. Am I a Christian? Am I saved? Like how, maybe God's just going to destroy me and consume me. And Am I condemned to the fire? And John anticipates this. And later on in his letters, he clarifies. This is amazingly powerful. In 1 John 4, verse 15 and 17, he says, John writes, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he or she in God. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. And I read that anew today for the first time and it just blew my mind because here's what he's saying. He's saying that faith, he's saying that trust in Jesus, he's saying that abiding in Jesus precede fruit. Trust and abiding in Jesus, and we're going to talk about abiding in a second, those precede fruit, and that's so important, because verses 4 and 5 of the text that we just read says the same thing, that wherever there's true fruit, faith was before that. Saving faith, the sort of faith that keeps us from being consumed by the fire, that was before the fruit. Fruit always comes only after faith. And so if you are a kind of person who, if you are someone who says, yes, I confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I believe that he dies for my sin. Yes, I believe that he atones for my gossip. Then John would say, then you are freed and cleared from that. that the, the, the fire judgment can have nothing to do with you. You abide in God and God abides in you. That's John's way of using what Paul says when he says you have been united with Christ and nothing can separate you from that. So Christian, do not beat yourself up and say, oh, I don't see fruit in my life. God must not love me. I must be condemned to hell. No, that is the opposite of the gospel. That is saying that God loves me based on whether or not I have fruit. The gospel says God loves me. God abides in me. I abide in God and therefore I bear fruit. That is the truth of Christianity. 
that when we confess our faith in Christ, we have confidence in the day of judgment, that we are not the worthless branches that are burned. Faith precedes and causes fruit. And if you claim that Jesus is God, if you trust in him, you abide in him and you are saved. So that gets us to our third point. What's up with this abiding thing? What is up with this, this third point? The way to fruit. First thing that we notice in this text is the true vine. Second thing, the call to faithful fruit. And the third thing, the way to it. The way to fruit, abiding So Jesus calls himself the vine, and then he calls all his disciples to bear fruit. And that's hard work. We're all naturally gossips. We're all naturally like the worst version of ourselves. So how do we change? (laughs) How do we move from the kind of people who are terrible (laughs) towards people who bear fruit? How do we move towards fruit-bearing, virtuous Christian life? And John tells us clearly in verses 4 and 5. Look again down at verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him or her, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. This idea of abiding. Jesus says that he as the vine, he is the source. He is the lifeblood. He is the nourishment that we must tap our souls and our hearts and our beings into. And when we do that, as we do that, that's where we get the nourishment to, to, to have real, to produce real lasting fruit. And he says that's so true that if you're not doing that, you cannot bear fruit. Without him, it is impossible. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So again, another idea from what I was, uh, from my own experience. I don't know. So a couple of months ago, I was trimming trees in my yard. And um, I was cutting some branches, pruning some overgrown trees, and I was dragging them to the side of my house so before the collector would come and take them away. And um, so I cut them down. And then after I cut them down, I went and mowed the lawn. And I went, I was mowing the lawn. I walked past and 15 minutes later, like 15 short minutes, I looked at these branches of trees that I had cut off and they were already wilted like like they looked completely dead, wilted, dying. They look completely sapped. There was nothing left to them. They were, it was a wilted dead branch. And it blew my mind that it only took 15 minutes. Like 15 minutes earlier, they were healthy, vibrant parts of the branch. And then I cut them off and just like in no time, they were completely sapped of all their life. That's how we are apart from Jesus. That apart from Jesus, we can do nothing to bear fruit. The only way to bear fruit in your life is to abide in Jesus. So what does it mean to abide? And that's a really hard question, one I'm honestly still trying to figure out. (laughs) Um, But I think part of the difficulty is that there's there's a translation difficulty. That word abide in Greek is really difficult to translate into English, and there's sort of this kind of range of meanings, like some people translate it abide, some people translate it remain, some people translate it endure or dwell, just this kind of huge idea that everybody's hovering around. Um, And I think, as I've been reflecting on this, abiding in John's mind is like a consistent, personal love for Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So he's saying here there's an intimate connection between abiding and love. Abiding in love. That somehow God is abiding within himself. And here we're getting into the mysteries of the Trinity that I don't have time or understand fully. But that somehow Christ abides in the Father and the Father abides in the Son and the Son loves the Father and the Father loves the Son. And as Christians, as we study and as we contemplate and as we dwell on that, we love and abide in the Son and the Father. And somehow that nourishes our souls so that we can bear fruit. Abiding in Jesus. What does it mean? I think it means a couple of things. I think it means the consistent, communal, and conscious pursuit of Jesus. The consistent, communal, and conscious pursuit of Jesus. Consistent. It's day in, day out pursuit to understand Jesus' love for you. That every day, in some small way, you are seeking to understand how Christ loves you. It's communal. You can't do it alone. You cannot tell yourself that Christ loves you in all the ways you need to hear it by yourself. You need other people. You need pastors. You need friends. You need guy friends. You need girlfriends. You need people older than you. You need people younger than you who will tell you that Jesus loves you in a way that you could never tell yourself. You need things like RUF. You need a church that is going to tell you and reinforce to you how God loves you. And finally, it's conscious. It takes effort. You're not going to stumble into abiding. It takes, it takes concentrated effort. You have to apply yourself to understanding Christ's love. Abiding is the consistent, communal, and conscious pursuit of Jesus. So how do we do that? How do we abide? Honestly, I'm still learning. <laughs> but I have a couple of thoughts as I've, as I've been reflecting. First, um, it starts with confessing faith in Jesus. That there is no abiding in Jesus without trust in Jesus, like I said earlier. That whoever confesses that Jesus is God and abides in him, he or she is in God. That means that fruit starts, I'm going to say this as plainly as I can, fruit starts by being a Christian. <laughs> fruit starts by being a Christian. It means admitting your sin, admitting your bad fruit, and turning to Jesus. And part and parcel with that is repentance. That Christian repentance is turning from one thing, that is our own selfishness, that is our sin, our gossip, turning away from that and turning towards fruit-bearing. Saying, I'm going to turn from my sin, gossip, slander, whatever, and turn towards obedience, turn towards love, fruit-bearing. We are all called to this. And the means to do that are what, what we call in Christianity the means of grace. And the means of grace is like a semi-technical term that Christians use to talk about the tools and the gifts that God gives us to grow and think. And uh, Think of them as like in the analogy, the, the vegetable analogy, like the hoe or the miracle grow or the water. These are the tools that we use, that we, that we utilize to grow in faith. What are they? Prayer, community, church, sacraments, time in the scripture, worship. These are the things that God gives you that you can abide in him. In each of these, the Holy Spirit uses them to shape us, to prune us. And I want to focus on for a second just worship. Stay with me. I know I'm going long tonight. 
But stay with me. I want to think about worship as the means of grace that helps you, helps us grow as fruit-bearing. And I think often that we, and I mean, I do this. I think you do too. I tend to treat RUF, I tend to treat large group basically like a podcast or like a lecture. Like the important part is basically the sermon. <laughs> like basically, I know people who show up to church late because they want to avoid the singing because they're like, I don't need that part. I just am here to like, give me the good stuff. Give me the sermon and then I'm out. They treat it like a podcast or a lecture. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's so wrong. Like singing together, worship together shapes your heart. It shapes my heart. It shapes our communal hearts to understand, to abide better in God's love. Psalm 130 is my favorite song. I, I, when I sing that song, I understand more about how much Jesus loves me every time I sing that song. When you all sing it with me, when you all, you all minister to me as you sing that song, and we minister to you together as we sing that song, singing together, worship is greater than the sum of its parts. You think about it, it's kind of weird. It's people like making sound waves with their voices and other pieces of material, strings, woodwinds. You think about it, it's just like, that's weird. And yet somehow all of that piles together and makes something that strengthens your and my faith. It's greater than the sum of its part. Worship matters. It's a means of grace that helps you to abide in Jesus, that helps you to know how much Jesus loves you. So in that, you avail yourself to it. Sing. Sing when we sing. Throw your heart into the worship that we do. Don't just stand and mumble. I'm not saying you have to sound good. That's okay. But sing in a way because the Spirit uses that to abide. Finally, the last thing here for the means to abide is consistent obedience. Verse 10, keep my commandments. Part and parcel with abiding in Jesus is a conscious, intentional effort to do what Jesus calls us to do and not do what he doesn't call us to do. He doesn't demand perfection, but he calls us to obey him. So much more could be said for abiding, but I'll stop at that. So what do we see in this passage? We see that Jesus calls us to abide in him as the true vine and to bear fruit. That he is the vine who succeeds where Israel fails and that he offers us, he extends us the nourishment we need to bear fruit. That we are called as Christians to bear fruit, to live lives distinguished by the virtues of Jesus. That our DNA should match his DNA. And that we do that, we bear fruit by abiding in Jesus. I'll close by reading one of the hymns, uh, one of the verses from Abide With Me. It says, Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Lord, would you help us to abide in you as you abide in the Son and the Son in you. Spirit, would you use the means of grace to help us grow, to make us fruit-bearing people who are marked by the intimate and sweet knowledge of your good love for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys can stand.